She's saying something in the heavenlies, words fail. Because words fail, he's trying to describe in imagery uh, using words that he has, but he's also using metaphors which seem to collide. Uh, similes, for example, when someone says, you know, Ben is like a wolf, uh, they're two different metaphors. Uh, they are opposing styles. Uh, ben is a man, a wolf is an animal. Why bring those two together? It's uh, bringing a juxtaposition, a contrast of two different metaphors. And normally when we think about a wolf, we think about a ferocious, sly, cunning person. So what we're effectively saying is Ben is sly, cunning ferocious, uh, violent, and will eat anything that comes in front of him. So Revelation tends to use that imagery, symbolism, to make correlations. Today we're covering chapter 15, and chapter 15, as I mentioned last week, is uh, in between the seven visions. In fact, it's at this point in time there's an interruption in the, in the visions of, of the earth, uh, beginning from chapter 12, uh, with this picture of uh, something being seen in heaven. So here's the reading. If you have your text open with you, uh, please keep your Bibles open. Verse 1, it says, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, uh, because with them God's wrath is completed. So I saw in heaven. All this while, if you recall, uh, just before this, and you can go back and read this again, all the visions tended to be what is happening on earth. On earth. Okay, so the angels come, but they go down on earth and they start doing uh, stuff on earth. And you have to remember that these are the angelic beings who are doing this. But in chapter 12, one of these characters is basically the dragon. And following on from that are the two beasts, one that comes from the land, one that comes from the sea. Some of you might be wondering, what's the significance from land or from sea? Well, in the book of Daniel, you have a creature, likewise, that came from the sea and from the land. I mentioned the symbolisms here, and in order to understand the background to this, uh, the Hebrew people in the Old Testament understood that the sea was a place of chaos, evil, and also the sea was a place where foreign enemies came. The Roman people were a people of the sea. They had actually come and conquered Israel through conquest by the sea. Uh, but in all situations, for example, when Jesus is uh, crossing the Sea of Galilee and then the storm rises, and Jesus says, peace, be still. It was indicative of two things. One, the, the apostles saw Jesus and said, what manner of man is this that can control the elements? But the Jewish people also knew that this is one man who symbolically, spiritually saying he has power to still the devil or chaos. And the story of this uh, Jesus in the, uh, in the Gospels continues on, if you recall, that he calms the Gerasene demoniac called Legion. Okay? Uh, the storm in the person's life with that legion of uh, unclean spirits in him, he says, get out, and that man becomes still. 
And so this uh, origin of the sea has always been this place of evil that has come. But what about the beast that comes from on land? Again, Jewish imagery was such that if you come from the sea, you're foreign. If you come from land, it's internal. So there's internal conflict and war within their own people. And the devil, at the, at the center of chapter 12, at the center of this book of Revelation, John is essentially saying that all these wars, all these conquests, all this enmity, both from outside and from inside, at its source, is the devil. He is coming after you. Now, he is telling this story to the people because they are kind of like wondering, if the kingdom of God is here, and Jesus is here, and the Spirit is here now, and God's kingdom is here, why is there still evil? Why is there still evil? And you might be wondering this as well. You know, if God is with me, why do I still encounter disease, disaster, uh, problems? And you recall sometimes when something apparently good happens, we say, praise the Lord. Nobody goes and says, praise the Lord, when they go and encounter cancer or stroke or a heart attack. But if God has already given us all the spiritual blessings, that we must consider that some of these things God is doing for our sake. Maybe hard for us to accept, but I've actually encountered people who said, if it were not for this problem that had occurred in my life, I would never have come to know Christ. And they come and in that same breath say, I counted all loss, all the trophies that I have. The song that we just sang, you know, we surrender all our trophies uh, to the Lord, knowing and embracing even the shame of the cross, knowing that we have gained a far greater thing. So the seven angels uh, comes with the seven last plagues. Uh, this is the vision in the middle of all these visions of the dragon, the two beasts, and the destruction that he's bringing. Uh, then God is being pictured here. I chose this particular passage, one, because between chapter 12 all the way up until eventually chapter 20, it's really bad news. Well, it's bad news and good news. It's bad news for all the bad guys. It's bad news also for us who are part of this world. But chapter 15 is kind of like an interlude and it's an interlock because as I mentioned, right, uh, the technical term I used last week, the intercalation as an overlapping. There's this seven visions, but within that seven vision, in the seventh vision itself, is, are the seven bowls. Okay, before the seventh vision is over, part of the seventh uh, vision is the seven bowls. And in the seven bowls, as this mentioned, the seven angels with seven last plagues. Now, again, symbolism that is to be interpreted according to how the Bible has given you this understanding. When you hear the term plagues, what do you think of? Well, you should automatically be thinking of the plagues of Egypt, except that you might automatically think, wasn't that ten? <laughs> Why seven? And remember, symbolism uh, is seven, complete number. Uh, ten was something which was given to them, ten commandments, the command of God. So different numbers, it's not exactly a literal uh, exact match, but a reminder of the plagues. The plagues were God's judgment on Egypt. Likewise, 
these bowls of uh, wrath, God's wrath, these last bowls of uh, plague are God's judgment on the world. Next question we have to ask is, um, when it says that the last, is this last in terms of sequence of visions or a sequence of time? And the way it has been written is such that there are overlaps and repetitions of the same cycles of seven. And so this would be more a sequence of visions. In the sequence of vision, visions, this is the last vision. It doesn't necessarily mean that this is a sequence in terms of time. Therefore, we interpret this, that these things are happening, have been happening since then till now. And so the timing of this is from the time when the church started right, till the time when Christ finally comes, all these persecutions have been escalating as a result of the work of the devil. Now, aside from that, uh, comes this again in the C, uh, this statement. Uh, let me continue reading that, right? I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. Uh, God's wrath is completed. Is there a place for anger in the world? Yes. Is God an angry, wrathful God? Yes. And so you may sometimes feel that the expositions that uh, some preachers or some teachers go and say, you know, God is always very kind, very loving and very gentle. Yes, that's one aspect of Him. Judgment still does come. Wrath is still there. And I, I, I would be doing you a disservice if I only pointed out the that nice side without showing the fact that His wrath is also there. So God's wrath is finally poured out, is completed. Verse 2, I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and the, and the Lamb. Now, in all of this uh, imagery that's given to here, when you think of the sea of glass mixed with fire, you think of Ezekiel, you think of Daniel, but you also think Old Testament Exodus. Because in the book of Exodus, uh, there is a statement there in the Hebrew where as they crossed the Red Sea, as the sea was parted, it became, uh, it congealed. And it congealed in a way that it became like glass or jelly uh, and they could see through. Okay, this is in the book of Exodus. But when we look at Daniel or when we look at Ezekiel, any time that the throne is being described, it describes a sea of glass or uh, what it covers it like a lever. Um, I don't know how to describe a lever. It's almost as if you can see through it and you can see things in it. And so in the sea of glass is this fire, mixed with fire. Is it literally fire? Don't know. I wasn't there looking at the vision. But that's how John describes it. But what is consistent in here is that it is reminding them of the time when God was over them as they crossed the Red Sea. That God is enthroned over chaos. Remember sea? Chaos. And the sea is no longer roiling in all its disaster. It is stilled. And all of evil has been stopped within that sea. 
Remember, this is in between all these other visions of destruction and the beast doing its absolute worst against all of humanity. You kind of like flip a vision. You know, it's almost like a, a I even say a Bollywood movie. You know, first you're on the mountains, then you're suddenly in the valleys, and then you're going around in the estate. The, the flipping of the scenes bring you into different sequences. And in this particular scene, despite of all the destruction, the wine press of God's wrath, the beast harvesting these people and the angels doing all this battle, God is depicted in His glory on His throne. But He's also a depiction of those who have been victorious. Let me point that out to you. Uh, verse 2 again. I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. Let me repeat that. Huh? I saw those who had been victorious over the beast and the, its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by song and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Now, um, I just want to explain this before I make a contrast. They held harps, sang songs of Moses. The song of Moses is the same song that they sang after they crossed the Red Sea. Okay? It's a song that uh, Moses sang and Miriam mirrored. Okay? It's a song of victory of how God uh, kind of saw them through this particular disaster. So imagery again and again and again. What they're doing now is reminding the people this is like a second exodus. The first exodus was Moses. The second exodus, Jesus. And now the final exodus going into the end of the age. It's not so much an exodus in time, it's an exodus about the life that we go through. If you look at your life as a story of exodus, you are imprisoned and slaves to bondage in sin, in all forms of oppression and also your brokenness of body. And God is in a way bringing you through all these sea of trials and trusting Him. And it's a difficult journey, but it's a journey through the wilderness where God is with you. So this is the same picture He's giving to this uh, people in uh, the, book of, uh, the, the letters of John and also the book of Revelation, the seven churches. Now, uh, remember I said, he's a picture of the people who are victorious. So you cross the Red Sea, you cross the, the, the throne of God's grace, everything is glass and frozen and this magnificent picture of God. And there's this picture of people who are trang, 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 playing the harps. That's kind of where you get all these Walt Disney pictures of these cherubs and angels flying around playing harps. Now, it may seem that way, but every time uh, when we find in the Psalms, when we find in the Old Testament, uh, it talks about God's angels uh, or God's people playing the harps. It is a picture of worship. And at that time, the harp was seen as the highest, one of the highest forms, and trumpets as well. So essentially, it's a picture of people who have overcome all their disasters and they're engaged now in what? You, music. <laughs> worship, and singing God's victory. Now, I want to, point this, uh, want to point this particular statement out. Who had been victorious over the beast and its image. 
because you need to contrast this in the context of all the visions that have gone past. You find in Revelation 13 verse 7, the beast, its image and its number was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. What does this mean? It means, this is a story in 13.7, uh, putting the context. It is about the bad guys. The devil and all his agents and all these things. In all his oppression against these, God has given them power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. So, what am I saying? Chapter 15 says, there's a bunch of guys playing the harp up there who are victorious over the beast. But their victory has been won over a beast who has conquered them. <laughs> now that may be very hard for you to brain, <laughs> to understand. But when we look in the light of how Jesus did this, Jesus didn't come demolishing all the works of evil. Just yesterday, I was with our friends in the, in the study of the book of John, uh, chapter 18 and 19. And in there, uh, Pilate says to Jesus, why do you not answer me? Do you not know that I have authority over you? to release you or to put you to death. And what is Jesus' answer? You would not have this authority if God had not given it to you. So yes, people have authority over us, but they are not the ultimate authority. I have friends who come to me and say, hey, you're a servant of the Lord, right? And you are supposed to serve for people, right? So will you do this for me? <laughs> and my answer is, yes, I am your servant. You are not my master. <laughs> I am your servant, but you are not my master. And so they have authority over me, but my master is Christ, my Lord and King, my Savior is God. And if they have authority to put me to death, so be it. But I have to be faithful to what the Master calls me. And so the example that is given to us is that, and especially to the church of Revelation and even to us now, that we are victorious not by our ability to conquer, demolish and smash the enemy, but it is our ability to be faithful and obedient to the Lord through all our tribulation and persecution. Now, some of you might be wondering, is it still relevant now? Let me give the context of the, the Roman time. Christianity was an officially illegal and dangerous religion for the period from Christ all the way up to AD 300. It's only AD 300 where Constantine basically made this an official religion. Okay, a official religion as Christianity. In AD 64, uh, Nero, Caesar Nero, right, uh, accused the Christians of setting fire to Rome. There was a great fire in Rome in AD 64 and he blamed the Christians. Now, many people said, you hear about this story that Nero was playing the fiddle on the roof over Rome when Rome was burning. 
that he was the one who had started the fire, but he was accusing the Christians. Why were the Christians such bad, bad, you know, people? Well, one, the Christians believed in something totally different from what the common people did. One, they believed that Jesus is Lord, and they also believed in a monotheistic faith, only one God. Everyone else in that particular place was polytheistic. You not only worship your uh, deity, your favorite deity, but you also worshiped Caesar. And national patriotism, being a Roman, basically meant that you must offer incense to Caesar because it is Caesar who brings in the wealth and the peace, the Pax Romana, to all people. So you can worship what God you want as long as you also worship Caesar. But if you are a Christian, you only worship one God. And you say, not Caesar is Lord, but Jesus is Lord. To live in that kind of situation was very difficult for them. Now, if that's not bad enough, every trade guild, you know, it's every, every, every clan. I think in Penang there's a similarity. You know, it's almost like every clan here, every jetty, or every clan group has its own local deity. And therefore, in order for you to be a member of this trade guild, you know, this membership of this group, you must also offer worship to that particular deity. Now imagine this, if all of your trade is defined by these guiles, and you want to be a Christian who succeeds in this commercial venture, but you don't offer up any to this. In modern terms, it means you got no network. <laughs> no network, no kawan. Nobody to help you. Hey, you know, I need this stock, I need this capital. It says you offer incense to my deity. And because they didn't do this, they were seen as the evil ones who are not like us, and anything bad that happens, their fault. You must also understand, culturally, everyone is doing their worship in public places. But the Christians, because they were persecuted, they went into houses, uh, subterranean vaults. They were not visible. So they were seen as irreligious, don't worship God, don't honor God. But theirs was a hidden God. So they were like Parya. Trajan wrote, uh, Emperor Trajan, Caesar Trajan said, Christians are not to be sought out. In other words, don't waste your time looking for them. But if you find a Christian, execute them. Okay, these are in our historical annals huh, of a Christian. And if you are a business person and you got a guy who's competing with you, who's a Christian, What's the best way to get rid of your competitor? It just takes uh, two people to say, this guy is a Christian. He refuses to bow his knee to Caesar. Not patriotic, treacherous, rebel. Can you imagine if that happens to Malaysia? You must be of this religion or else... And we, you know, we don't have to look so far. You know, ISIS has done it. 
acknowledge this faith, repent, you know, curse your religion, curse Christ. This was actually in our historical, in our actual historical records. Uh, uh, Pliny, uh, one of the historians, uh, Roman historian, recorded the common mantra was offer a pinch of incense to the Caesar and curse Christ or else die. That is what they said. So as an official religion that was opposed to Christianity, it was bad. Guess what? In spite of all this persecution, the church grew and grew and grew and grew. Slaves joined it. Women joined it because you were in a culture where women were just pieces of property to be used, abused, thrown aside, and you know, just like, like paper. The old were cared for and people were seen as brothers and sisters. In all of this, these people overcame not by causing revolt, not by basically killing their enemies, but effectively continuing to love, to forgive, to pray for their enemies, and to persevere in acknowledging Christ as Lord. Would you want to join this kind of religion? Where the very mention that you say, I am a Christian, would mean your life is forfeit. That's what John is writing to. <laughs> and he's explaining to them, these things are all happening in spite of the fact that Christ is king. These things are all happening because the devil is working and that your faithfulness is being refined to the time when Christ comes again. What is the vision that John paints or rather, what is the vision that given to John which he communicates to his people? It is, it is a vision in heaven of worship and judgment. Remember, at the center of this vision here is in all these difficulties that are happening, God is sovereign. He is king of the nations. Okay, you'll find in your translation two possibilities that they give. King of the nations or king of the ages. Both are valid. Both are valid. He's king of the nations, not just of the Israeli people, but he's king of the nations of all. And you recall in Exodus, the nation that they were fighting against were Egypt. But now, nations, everyone, including those who were formerly isolated, are welcome to this place. So here's the thing. At the center of all of this is this whole aspect of worship and God's judgment. You will also find that the seven bowls of wrath in the book of Revelation is also the mention of the bowls of the prayers of the saints. You know, the prayers of the saints go up to the Lord, right? And the angel is told, take that bowl of prayers, throw it down to the earth, and calamity strikes the people. The prayers of the saints in a way, the prayers of the saints are effectively the very thing, the wrath that is thrown down on the people. Your prayer, very powerful way. <laughs> you may not see it, but it is these same bowls of the prayers that are poured out where God judges these people. Do you know, it's sometimes worse, right? When you do something as a Christian and someone is cursing you, 
his prayer up to God is, God, you see this man. He has done this. The one who watches and sees all things sees this. And he will judge. <laughs> that's, that's what they're saying. It's a picture of the worship of the people calling out to God, God, see these things. And God sees and he will issue his judgment. There's a vision of the temple, and in there you see this uh, tabernacle. There are various names for this tabernacle. Uh, the tabernacle, again, points out to the time in Exodus. Uh, when the tabernacle was set up, that's where God met his people, okay? where the direct interaction is. And where God's uh, presence is, tabernacle, in its fullness, there is this inescapable holiness, wrath, and glory. If you look at the song, right, uh, here's how the song goes. They sang the song of God's servant Moses and the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy, separate, pure. All nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Okay. And after this, out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes or golden breastplates. Okay. Translation is there. What is this picture? Uh, for the Jewish people who look at this, they knew that temple worship involved people wearing white or linen. So these angels are acting a bit like priests. They are intermediaries and intercessories between God and the people, and it is God issuing out this judgment on people. Brothers and sisters, we have a, a, a difficult time to try and work this through. But if you understand at its core, the devil is one of the causes that is causing the problems in this world. But it is also God who is issuing out His judgment. And His judgment doesn't affect just the evil, it affects us as well, all. The issue is not so much that you are protected from this period. The issue is so much in this period that you go through, right, how will you respond to God? In faithfulness, or in drawing closer to Him. Because the Christians are being martyred, they are being skewered, they are being barbecued, they are being killed, shot. You just have to look at current day news. They are being beheaded, they are being mutilated, they are being tortured. And Revelation just tells them, this is the brokenness of the devil, but the things that happen on us are also God's judgment. Now, that is not to say, and I'm quite clear in saying here that you can blame every catastrophe on God's judgment. Tsunami, la, earthquake, and all that. In a way, it is the brokenness of our world. It's reaching a point. And God is not saying that I'm doing it specifically there, but this is a consequence of our brokenness. But at the end of this, He says that it is inescapable inescapable. His holiness, His wrath, and His glory are coming. And until such time, we have to face how we want to deal with it. 
whether we deal with it with God or without God. A friend of mine used to say this. I think He said, I think I've kind of summarized the Bible. All of us die. All of us suffer. The question is, do we do it with God or without God? With God, without God. And it is a greater comfort to be with God because when we are with God, our death cannot cling to us. You die the first death, but the second death escapes away from us. We escape from it. But for those who have no God with them, that death is the choice that they have taken and they are left with it for the rest of eternity. Going forward, some thoughts for you to think about. <clears throat> Our victory is through loyalty to Christ in tribulation. Our victory is not that, oh, we will always be prosperous, wealthy, healthy. It is not a situation that we will always be in power and in control. The Bible is quite clear in saying this, brothers and sisters. Test these words. Our victory is through loyalty to Christ and our tribulation in Christ. And the very fact that we are called to be like Christ to the cross means that this is also how we are called to live our life. Secondly, worship, praising God, is an eternal activity. Eternal. I find comfort when I visit some of our older members. Um, sometimes they can't see you. Sometimes they can't hear you. But you start a song and they join you in it. As the deer pants over the water, uh, you know, turn your eyes unto Jesus. These are things which are embedded in their hearts. They can't remember their own child's name. I, I, I go and visit Auntie Chute, and without fail, <laughs> Psalm 23, we will recite together by memory. You ask her, when's your birthday? Don't know. What do you have for breakfast? I can't remember. Did you eat breakfast? Don't know. Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not fear. It just rolls off. Praise is one thing which we hold on to, an eternal activity. So, brothers and sisters, when we worship, when we sing the hymns, may it be something that really touches your heart, that, that fills you, that you want to do it because you'll be doing it for the rest of your life. <laughs> Can you imagine, I don't like doing this, you know, then for the rest of eternity, every moment is like this. But more than that, the praise of God is the very weapon of warfare, spiritual warfare. The very thing that we do to quell the things that affect us when we sing the praises of God, when we remind ourselves of the truth of God's sovereignty, these are the very things that remind us and help us through our tribulation. Lastly, praying, praying, praying. Do you know, I, I'll be very frank here. I assess the health of the church based on how much the people pray. That's the pastor's uh, acid test. We, we, we kind of know the, the health of the church based on how much the church prays. 
Because everywhere throughout Scripture, prayer is the one thing that reminds us how people are in touch with God. They can listen to as many sermons as they want to, they can do as much as they want to, but that is no reflection of their relationship with God. It's just them doing something. It is an act of worship, it is an act of wonder, but it is also an act of wrath. Why? Because what I'm doing when I pray is, Lord, I know if I had my way, I would ask you to bring lightning and thunder down on them or whatever. But I'm surrendering it to you and I'm forgiving them. I'm not going to hold it against them. I don't want this poison to be in my heart. Whatever they have done to me, I'm going to let go. And I'm going to leave it into your hands because you see better than I do. And God's response is, vengeance is mine. Mine alone. Don't try and be God. We leave it to Him in our prayers. We leave it at His feet. Let Him count Him everything. Because if you try to do it your way, you are playing God. Let us pray. Dear Lord, in the midst of all the things that we have gone through, we ask that you help us to keep our eyes focused on the fact that you are sovereign, that our praises ring out to you, and that our prayers are heard, Lord. In all our cries to you, Lord, let our prayers be prayers of forgiveness, reconciliation, and a surrendering of all things into your hands, Lord. In the same way that Christ called us, Lord, into your hands, I commend my spirit. Help us, Lord, day by day to be a people of prayer, coming to you, commending ourselves into your hands. May your praises be lifted up, Lord. May your judgment be true. And may we rejoice in the fact, Lord, that you and you alone are Lord over all things. I ask this, O Lord, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.